Hello and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at Austin Art Talk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Keith Krieger loves clay. For the past 25 years, he has dedicated himself to forming and shaping various types and colors of that material into beautiful bowls, vases, plates, and many other objects that are intended to be used and enjoyed. After college, he set up his first potter's studio in Cape Cod, where he grew and honed his artistic and business skills. Then a move to Austin shifted the aesthetic of his work to more simple forms and subtle lines. The look and profile of his business has also evolved over the years as he has strived to stay in tune with his core values and maintain a balance between work, family, what feels right, and what makes sense. His customers are people who care about where the things in their life come from and how they are made. Objects matter. Keith and I talk a lot about his business, but also delve into his history in ceramics and his philosophies about his art, his customers, and how he figured out where he is headed. Here's Keith. All right, well, thanks for being on my podcast, Keith. Of course, thanks for this super rad headset. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. And we're sitting in your super rad uh, showroom, which is really beautiful. Thanks. Um, yeah, it has has some natural light, which is nice. Yeah. So we're at Canopy, which is a artist studio and gallery complex in Austin, Texas, on Springdale Road. And how long have you been here? From the beginning? From the very beginning. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm sure that's when we first met. But um, yeah, we're, we've been neighbors for it, what five or six years. Yeah. So we're sitting here in Building Three, which is about a hundred yards from Building One, where you are, and Building Two, where my <laughs> studio is. So, yeah. Exactly. Um, so I've been in the studio since the beginning, and we took this space about probably 18 months ago or so. Yeah. Cause you just needed more production space. We needed more production space. Um, was looking at kind of expanding or moving and I didn't want to really expand. So this became a kind of, um, easy way to gain some more space. All of this stuff that you see here was in the front room of the studio, which is now added production space. So oh, yeah. yeah, we gained a lot and I have a little office carved out here. So I feel like an adult when I'm over here yeah. working. Nice. Yeah, I haven't actually been in your space since you moved over here. So, so would you uh, 
what labels do you use for yourself? I'm kind of curious. Like ceramicist, <laughs> artist, designer, maker. Like what? Uh, feels I don't know. Best? None of them feel good when you're self-describing. Um, for years, I was. I mean, I use the word just um, just a potter. Um, potter. Yeah. I don't know how to. Ceramicist has always felt too snooty to me. Okay. Artist is a difficult thing to call you. I don't. I don't know. Okay. I, I make things. Curious. I design things. <laughs> um, but at the core is um, everything starts from uh, from my experience as a potter. Yeah, and I do want to get to the history of that, and I also want to eventually touch on. I just feel like as someone running a business, I think I've always been so impressed with the clarity of your voice, of your communications, of kind of the wit and strategy around how you market your work and how you do sales and launch new lines. And I don't know. I mean, did that, do you get a lot of help with that? Or is that just how, how have you figured all that out? I think sort of like my studio practice, it's, you just try it and you take a step forward and yeah. hope it works out. That's been my MO. I don't have a business background, but I don't know. If, I mean, we'll get into this later or we'll start now, yeah. but how I positioned my work changed after I moved to Austin and sort of how I wanted to um, showcase it and talk about it. And um, so it was like a chance to reinvent yourself, I guess, in a way. Um, sort of. It was just what I realized. I, I had done things the quote-unquote traditional way, where you know I learned my craft at school. I did craft shows and trade shows, and you know, kind of sold pots how you're supposed to sell, sell pottery. And then you know, it just felt stagnant after a while. So I decided to shift how I viewed my work and how I presented it, and started to and i mean look i hate to talk about instagram as yeah. as a <laughs> as a thing because it's like it's jumped the shark and it's you know influencer driven now and yeah. it's different than it was when it first came out like but when it first came out it was sort of oh this person's doing cool stuff and you start following them and then you know, oh, look at this wedding designer. Look at this food stylist. Look at all these people who are using objects like the ones I make. Yeah. But they're pulling it in from industrially made sources. Right. So I was just trying to connect with them in a way and look at how they were styling their work. Look at how they were, you know, shooting their photographs and why isn't anyone doing that with handmade pots? Oh. And with handmade pots, it was the graduated backdrop and sort of like you know, you're sending slides off to a, a craft show to get into the craft show. And that's how you documented your work. Like almost like museum work or exactly. something. Exactly. And um, I mean, that was just, that's the way you did it. And Instagram sort of opened my eyes to, oh, I can put my work in context in this photo. You know, instead of saying, look at how beautiful this picture is, and then look at how beautiful this 25th picture that I made this week is. Yeah. I could be like, Look at how this stuff is used on a tablescape. Look at how this bathroom looks with something as silly as one of my cups with a toothbrush in it. Yeah, yeah. You know, if I want my work used, why don't I show it in use? And, you know, big picture, you know, if I'm standing in a you know convention center in New York selling my work wholesale, and I'm in this static environment where it's rows and rows and rows of things like my stuff, Yeah. Um, it's not standing out in the same way. So I just, you know both within the way I presented it online and tried to present it in person was kind of, let's take it out of where it's supposed to be and put it where 
it it stands out. So, by the way, I'm really good at rambling, so you're going to okay, have to yeah. uh, to bring me back. But well, I, I maybe give me a little bit of context of how you fit into this your world or this world because I just don't really know other potters or ceramicists. You want to be in people's lives, part of like their moments and memories. Of, well, I think of, anyone you know, who makes things wants to be part of someone's life, right? Yeah. Like that's that's what drive for me what drives me to make something is to have it used and i want if it's a family using it you know a dinner that people are sharing plates and bringing you know my my work becomes part of this experience of of real things yeah um of real moments and i think that goes you know along just about any functional potter wants wants that you okay. know we definitely want to make these showcase pieces that sit on shelves but I don't want to speak for other potters. I don't want to speak for anyone else. But yeah, okay. um, I want my, you know, I want my work to be beautiful enough t- and special enough that it can sit on a shelf. But I also want it used every day, and that's sort of, I think, that's what drives me. I've already forgotten the question. No, I need more right. coffee here. No, I was just asking about how your work and career fits in the context of just this broader world of. That's so hard to describe oh, okay. because the broader world has, you know, it's changed. I've. I'm finally old enough to be a potter, right? Yeah. Like when I had my first studio, I was 23 years old and people would walk in and see all this work that I'd made. And, um, we were on a main street of, um, a tourist town in Cape Cod and people would come in and say, Oh, who's the potter? And then, you know, 23 year old kid would be like, I am. <laughs> and, you know, they're looking around for the 50 year old guy with, yeah. you, with a, you know, um, it's funny. I actually have a beard for the first time in my life, but you know, with a big burly beard and, you yeah. know, all, you know, that image of a potter. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, it's changed. The craft shows have, you know, there was a peak for that kind of thing. You know, artist residencies were, it still are a thing. MFA programs, that was sort of, you know, coming from learning, learning my craft in college, you know, there was this path that I, you were supposed to take, take the residencies, you know, work at all these co-op studios, go get your MFA, become a professor, all that. And that's still an option, but because of the um, proliferation of schools and MFAs, it's a much more difficult option now. Colleges aren't hiring full-time professors, um, Mm. sort of, I mean, it's almost like the gig economy everywhere else. It's everything is applied to every field at this point. But I played within that world. And when we were talking earlier, like I was talking only to that world. Um, And when I moved here to Austin, I became uh, part of a group called Art of the Pot, which is this incredible, stu- you know, artist-driven studio tour, much like East, uh, yeah. that happens here. And it's amazing. One of the things I was pushing for, and this was sort of at the beginning of my changing how I viewed my work, was, look, people who love pottery are always going to find us. We're already talking to them. They already understand the importance of the handmade object. They, you know, it's part of their daily lives. You know, we're not going to say don't come and we're not going to become complacent that they're always going to show up. But the way we do our stuff, we already have this group of people who collect our work and support us. And how do we get new people in? Um, And that's when sort of I shifted again, how I was presenting my work, what my success I feel like has come from sort of leaving the ceramics community in that kind of traditional sense. Mm. Um, it's a little weird. I stopped doing Art of the Pot as um, the um, restaurant side of our business kind of took off. And it was just, you know, it was a time thing. And you have to make choices of yeah. what you're going to spend your time doing. 
And was that not an early strategy maybe when you did move to Austin was that if you could get into restaurants, then you're putting your work right in front of potential customers who are going to those restaurants and then they might want work for themselves. Yeah, well, it's actually, I mean, yes, that's how it turned out. Okay. But that wasn't <laughs> that yeah, that wasn't my motivation. My my motivation was again talking about the people I've sold pots to for yeah. 16 years at this point. They were shopping at farmers markets. They were caring about where their produce was coming from. They understood, you know, the sourcing of meats and kind of the importance of where things come from, just like I was just talking about real things. They understood sourcing and how that matters. They were also putting it in one of my big salad bowls, you know, so it all came together. And that's how I lived at home. That's how my mentor had lived. Um, and that's how people who collected my work sort of lived. What I saw on the other side was that people cared about food, they joined CSAs, and they were putting it on their industrially made dinner sets at home. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to them. And I w- what I was trying to do with the way I was photographing my work and presenting it was to kind of hammer over their head, you can use this at home too. Like, you don't have to do that. What happened with doing some events with chefs is that they started buying my work for the restaurants. It was a cool idea. It was also frightening because of the scale of the kind of, you know, the orders that our first order was bigger than what a typical wholesale order would be. So I thought, awesome. What a cool opportunity. You know, get to work with these cool chefs. It's going to put the work in use, like you're saying, and we'll explain to people, oh, cool. And then they'll start buying my work retail. So I thought of it as a kind of one-off opportunity Mm. to get into this restaurant to do some stuff. And that would help sort of propel my work into that food lover world that could also begin to care about where things are made. Um, a couple things happened, which is where, you know, you take that step and then you see where it goes and then you sort of feel. Yeah, there was like one restaurant you started with. Yeah. yeah, I mean, every, you know, everything starts with the first one. Um, And, you know, it took a while to get a second restaurant gig, but it was cool when that did happen. And then it sort of shifted from, oh, here's another restaurant group that wants to use my work. Things are, people are starting to realize it. And then I sort of focused on the restaurant world, let the wholesale part of our business kind of just slow down and die off and then sort of had these two like the retail side and the restaurant side and what was the wholesale side like what what does that mean so i did a trade show at the javits convention center up in new york twice a year and we would you know bring our standard collection a couple of new seasonal items and we sold to kind of small number of shops across the country um sort of the same thing that i view my work on the retail and restaurant side i'm not trying to make all the pots in the world i'm not trying to get my work in every single place so i went into the wholesale thing with a higher minimum order i don't know how detailed you want to go get on stuff but i'm interested um, so I was going for the bigger stores, and you know, we ended up getting work in a beautiful tabletop store in Los Angeles. Um, we sold to Bergdorf Goodman in New York, um, sort of super high end, yeah, that scale, and then also um, kind of smaller, really high end design shops. That was sort of sort of our thing until the restaurant part kind of took over our capacity in the studio. Was that scary to? give up that wholesale side? I mean, was that was that successful at the time? Or It felt successful. Yeah. Um, I think it's always scary to stop doing something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you don't stop doing something, you can't do something new. 
And every time I've stopped doing something, other opportunities came or I had time to try something new. And it's always the hardest thing to do. Like when I left Art of the Pot, that really felt like it was May, it was Mother's Day weekend, it was a, you know, a super fun experience. It was a way for me to stay connected to the outside ceramics world. I had guest artists from across the country come through, you know, so I would host three artists, we would host 16 total across four studios, and part of this incredible kind of euphoric event of bringing yeah. creative people together and being excited about their work. And also knowing that you have this dedicated customer base in May, which is a nice time of year to have cash flow. Yeah. So all of that, but I had, I had to stop doing it. It was it took too much time for what else I wanted to do. Um, um, so that was a hard thing to say no to. And but I stopped doing it, and we found other things to fill that place. Um, stopping wholesale did feel scary. It's like, you know, I knew that two times a year we were up in New York and we were having all this great exposure and we were selling to our existing clients, getting a couple new. It's the kind of show where press is walking through and it felt important if I was going to keep going in that direction. But as more and more restaurants kept calling, I realized that the incoming calls were not coming from being at that show. Hmm. Um, there were a couple chefs who would walk that show. There were a couple kind of high-end designers who would, but the return on it wasn't worth the effort. It was also, it's a week-long show. I don't know if you've ever been to the Javits, but it yeah, is not the most um, inspiring <laughs> building in the world, yeah. <laughs> um, especially when you're setting up in August and they don't have the air conditioning on until they open the show three days later. Wow. So it's just brutal. Um and, it's and a lot of money, a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of time away from my family. Um, mm. You know, so the cycle of things changed for me. Those shows are a beat down in the sense that you spend so much time getting ready for them, trying to kind of you feel this push to create something new, whether it's a new glaze or a new style or a new kind of piece that you're going to add to the collection like wow people or something just yeah just something new so if someone comes through yeah they're, they're like oh tell me about this one and you know so there's this six to eight week lead time of getting that stuff ready shipping a crate full of work and a booth space up going setting up this thing going to the show talking to people for four days five days straight and while I can ramble and while I get excited when I talk to people, <laughs> I then need about two weeks to not talk to anyone. Yeah. Um, same thing will happen here after East Austin Studio Yeah, tour. I'm sure. And then I get home and I'm just exhausted. And I'm not the best version of a dad or a husband and, or a person. Then it takes time to recover. And then by the time you come out of that, you know, it's like, oh, well, we have to make this work. You just lost a couple months, really. Well, yeah. And then you're making work from the orders. And then you're finishing those and shipping. And there's the pressure of that. And then it's all coming together again. And then you're like, oh, shit, I have to start doing... Um, getting ready for this next show. So it was this, the cycle was too short for me. And my wife is very good at um, everything, but most especially <laughs> um, recognizing things quicker than I do about, mm. you know, how things affect everything. You don't need to do the show. You don't need to do this. You know, you have these opportunities, you know, we can do this, we can do this. So a lot wouldn't happen without her. To me, when I think about finding like, a partner that really has your back. I mean, that's what I think of. It's like they help you navigate life and your career and make you better, you know? And I just, uh, uh yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate on that. 
And you just celebrated 18 years, right? <laughs> we did, which ironically is the porcelain anniversary. Um, oh, oh so really? <laughs> we're we're not we're not big on wedding gifts. And then uh, you know, just out of um, kind of a joke, I um, googled what's an 18th wedding anniversary, yeah. and porcelain came up. <laughs> I was like, I am so sorry. <laughs> So. That's hilarious. And you made a joke on Instagram. I think you said our relationship is now officially an adult. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's more mature than we are. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So once you quit the wholesale, you were starting to talk about the restaurant work. Was that word of mouth? Like, how did that proliferate? It is. And I think it's it's sort of very similar to, for me, the pottery world is a small community. And we've had some incredible chefs as clients, and they sort of have been really great about sharing my work and letting people know about it. And again, that early advent of social media where um, everyone is seeing stuff in use and kind of sharing. And I'm fortunate that I get these beautiful photos of my yeah, work Yeah, I was just going to say. Um, yeah, but just, that's something intentional that you commission. I mean, you hire people to do that, right? Well, yes and no. Um, I do. We just worked with Jody Horton, who's an incredible photographer. Yeah. We worked with Kate Lasser in the past um, um, on these styled shoots. But I was talking more about oh, the, yeah. um, when a chef is using our plates in a restaurant right. and you know, they're proud of this dish that they just created that looks phenomenal and it's on my plate. It's like, oh, well, look at this and get to show that off by, by sharing that again. And, you know, their followers become my followers. And um, again, it was really early on and it was, I didn't get to this point earlier. A friend of mine pointed this out, which is really funny, this, this change in social media where early on you would follow people who interested you you know, who who got you interested in what they were doing. And then the world is small enough, and especially here in Austin, that you'll meet them at some point. Mm -hmm. And you already have that sort of awkward, I know what's going on, you know, but also you're inspired by their work. So you got, everyone has something to talk about. So I was thinking about um, my friend Ashley Bailey, who um, lives in Jacksonville now, but she's a, a floral designer who started here in town. She did a pop-up by George and I'd followed her and she'd followed me on Instagram but I'd never met her before and I think it was a Valentine's Day pop-up so I brought one of my vases over to have her make an arrangement for for Evangelina my wife and you know you meet the person in real life and you get to see what they do and they get to see what you do and that sort of um, that version of social media is gone now where now it's sort of awkward to follow someone you don't know especially Mm -hmm. when you're in a similar social circle and then the minute you meet them somehow it becomes okay to click yeah. that follow again. Like that creepiness of following wasn't a thing back then because yeah, yeah. everyone was just so excited about seeing what these visually stunning things that were being created. I mean, I know that social media does not necessarily represent real life or people's real lives, but I mean, I definitely, at least just following you, get a sense of, and just, you know, what you're talking about, a sense of like all the rich relationships, all the, you know, just kind of like your work going out to dozens of restaurants all over the country or beyond and people using your work and reposting it and you getting to meet people and like you recently did that or you were participated in that dinner at Billy Reed with Mumford and Sons. I mean, it's just like you get to do so many cool things. Like, can you believe that? It, I don't know. It just seems really, it's, I don't know. Oh, it's very weird. And it's, it's again, it's very weird that pottery has created these opportunities. But yeah. 
I think, you know, on a broader scale, the sort of lines between mediums or lines between disciplines have, have crossed. There's, and that's, that's good and bad, right? Everyone thinks they're a lifestyle brand now. But because of the cross between music and art and design and food and all of this stuff is just sort of all related at this point that somehow my network has grown into these places where I get to be part of these things and it's it's weird and awesome so yeah it just seems all so positive to me from the outside. I mean, it's just like you're providing something well-made and beautiful that people enjoy in their life or in their restaurant. And like you get all this positive feedback. I don't know. It just must be very gratifying, even though it's probably incredibly hard and you probably work your ass off all the time. <laughs> um, it's always work. But when you get to be part of those events and sort of... I don't want to overuse the word collaborate because it gets used in the wrong context now. But yeah, yeah, you get to, to collaborate with these different, um, you know, different people on these things. It's it's awesome. And again, what I want is that connection. I want my work to be part of this event that brings people together. And again, whether it's you know a family sitting down to the dinner once a week that they get to have, or a night out to celebrate someone's birthday and you may or may not realize that my work's part of it. Yeah. I hope you do. And you know, you're, you're at Uchi or Ola May here in town or Emmer and Rye and you're, you know, you're part of this incredible experience that you, you have that moment and the things within that moment are what you remember about it. It's the laughs you had with your friends. It's the, the pasta dish that just blew your mind. And mm -hmm. hopefully it's, Oh my God, try this. And you're passing this bowl across the table and, that's what I want. And also, if it happens to be Mumford and Son sitting down to dinner with 50 of their closest friends, eh? then playing a little intimate set in, in at the store with Billy Reed, um, it's pretty great. And and your literal hand was on that piece or your fingerprint or whatever, the, your mark, you know, like that's... Yeah. I mean, that's the, the beautiful thing about clay is that whoever made it, their hands touched that piece and it's in there for forever and talking about sort of the cultural significance of that these objects of that people used when they lived are how we discovered how people lived so yeah you know we um my wife is originally from el salvador and her her father has this incredible mayan pottery collection mm. um you know first time I went to visit them, I get to hold this piece that you would normally see in a museum behind glass. And I was probably the first boyfriend who looked at this wall of pots and said, oh my God, this is the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen. <laughs> um, yeah. But it was. And I'm holding this piece that I know is made a thousand years ago by a person. Yeah. And that the decisions that they made of how to finish a rim or how to make this one little fat there's one piece i'm thinking of in particular that has these weird facets around the edge of it like that was a decision that was made that the person you know who's making however many thousands of pieces they make at that point right whether they're ceremonial or whether they're functional they're just that's what they do they're making pots every day mm -hmm. and on this particular pot it's like hey i'm gonna do this and this this person their thumbprints are on this piece and that's a thousand-year-old thumbprint, and it's a thousand-year-old decision that someone made that is static and gets carried through history. Yeah. So, And like you said, it helps us now 
look back and understand what these people's lives were like Mm -hmm. by studying these things. Yeah, I like this quote that you have on your website. You said, I think you deserve to know the maker of the objects you use every day. It seems like you really are present in your life. You're trying to pay attention to all these little details, you know, you're, and I just wonder if that's somehow connected to just being a potter. And like I've read in some of your interviews talking about just like how in tune you have to be with the clay and your body and just be in that moment. And it's like this push and pull and the sensitivity. I mean, it just, do you think that in some way has lent itself to just how you just live your whole life and every moment in your life? I mean, is that too woo-woo? Oh, I'm, I'm, I think... <laughs> I'm sure I'm more hypocritical about how I live my life than okay. if I try to relate everything to that. But... Um, you see what I'm getting yeah. at. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's... Um, for me, clay is very special. Um, it's... Yeah, it brings you into that moment when you're doing it. I don't want to get, you know, super weird on it. But yeah, right. you're, you're in that moment and it's part of it. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't have an answer for you on that, okay. I guess. Um, I just think that, again, talking about how things are made is what I'm trying to do. And how, I guess, why things are made is the more important question that I'm asking now. So, yeah. especially for me, we've had the opportunity to, you know... I've got a, a great studio team right now that keeps keeps work flowing. There are three of us in the studio, um, along with myself, so four total. It's um, capacity is our issue. We could sell more pots than we can make. And the hardest decision I made, and it took about a year and a half, a while, about about two years ago, but it took a long time to say, okay, no, we're not going to try to grow. Like, yeah. we'll grow, but we'll grow within what we do. We're not going to grow and sort of invest a ton of money and, you know, get 10,000 square feet of studio space and hire 10 more people so we can make more of that. It was about understanding this is what we do. This is how we do it. So there's space to grow within this, but growth for growth's sake isn't something that I want to chase. I think that's the opposite, though, of kind of a lot of businesses, isn't it? Well, I, I, we're at this interesting moment. I um, I was an American Studies major in college, and before I started making pots, I interned on Capitol Hill. So yeah. um, I sort of always followed politics and always like studied history. I don't know what that segue is, but <laughs> I guess talking about big picture stuff here, yeah. it's um, yeah. I mean, there's this. You know, if you look at WeWork right now, it's this incredible example of what is not right about things, and that investing in things just to invest and take stuff out of it doesn't work um Mm -hmm. it's about building something lasting there's a few other potters who do incredible work and are scaling pretty pretty large um largely quickly whatever the phrase would be yeah um and that was as i was trying to make the decision not to grow you see and you know i know them and i'm friends with them and you see them and jealousy comes in and envy and also like it took a while for me to realize they're doing something very different than what i'm doing Mm. um and that's okay there's room for all of it and i didn't want to chase that um i didn't want to take investor money and then have to answer to investors Um, yeah i want to continue to kind of self-grow i guess would be the phrase there's this um um, furniture designer i'm going to probably say his name incorrectly and he was in town the other day i just couldn't get over to his talk but eric trine his furniture company is amigo modern but his personal um 
social media stuff and his blog are brilliant. And it's sort of all about the confluence of design and branding, how they get, how they just get mumbled up together now, Mm. where there's so many startups that talk about design, but what they're really doing is just rebranding. I can think of a couple of sort of new startups in the ceramics field. That's the field I know that are having their stuff manufactured at a factory in Portugal. And I think it's great. And I think there's room for that, but I don't think that's the same thing as designing and making. I think it's, you know, when you apply Warby Parker direct to consumer sort of marketing thing to everything, everything gets confused as to what we're talking about. And I want to continue to talk about the objects that we're making in my studio that start to finish are made here that we make things when they're working and when they don't work, we try to figure out a solution and create new options within that. And we're small enough and slow enough that we get to react quickly. Um, Mm. And that's um, what keeps it fun for me. You know, sometimes we have some large scale projects. Sometimes we have some mid scale projects, but since you know, again, since I'm not in this 10,000 square foot space and have a huge payroll, I don't have to say yes to everything. Um, yeah. So, is that about maintaining your integrity in a sense? I mean, is that could you think of it that way? Probably inadvertently, but I think it's maintaining my sanity and mm. also being really specific in defining and redefining as you go. So defining what success looks like, defining what growth looks like, and realizing that what it looks like for someone else doesn't matter um, yeah. within your own studio space. It's like that whole idea of not comparing yourself to others and making yourself feel bad <laughs> necessarily, or just comparing yourself to to you and wh- how you want to improve, you know? Yeah, which is, you know, probably the most difficult part of humanity. So. Yeah, yeah. Are you, I wonder how intentional you are about, I mean, do you sit down every so often or every day or every six months and kind of reevaluate where you are in, in, in a more intentional way? Like kind of is what I thought of when you were talking. Um, I, th- I mean, yeah, I think you're constantly reevaluating what I did in the studio when I was trying to figure out all this stuff was we had just come off a year with our biggest restaurant order ever. And it was like 3,600 pieces. Or it something. was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it was custom and that's insane. it was, <laughs> it was a beat down and it was also that classic trying to grow and do more and the problems that brings along with it. And, you know, halfway through the order, we're having glaze troubles. And when you're having glaze troubles on that scale, mm. it becomes a problem and it becomes, you know, we have to make, you know, X number of pieces again. Um, so what I did after that year was decide not to do that again. (laughs) Um, (laughs) in the sense of, um, you know, we just tracked everything we made in a different way and sort of like spent a year figuring out, okay, so each month, what are we able to comfortably make? What are we able to make that kind of pushes our limits and what is not possible and taking all that you know the following year and applying that to when people are calling in about an order and running every decision through the lens of how does this affect the studio as an ecosystem 
my incredible team as people and my well-being as, you know, am I going to walk into the studio every day being stressed or are we going to be, this is great, let's keep moving on this. Um, and how it affects your family, too, yeah. obviously. Yeah, obviously. Which is probably the top priority. Um, it should be. And, yeah. Yeah, um, for sure. And also, you know, I want to go see my kids play sports and they're at that age where they're they're doing that. And, you know, if I have to work weekends and nights to get an order pushed through the door, that was because we took off, you know, took on something a little bit more than we should have. That's not a sign of success. So figure out how to stop doing that. Yeah, more balance. Because it's like, yeah, you don't want to be maybe the dad that wasn't there, but wow, we live in this great house and we have all these things, but I, we didn't get to hang out that much or something, right? Yeah, I, I'm going to go to my therapist to figure all this stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I think we all need therapy. Um, maybe we could just jump back and if you could just give me an idea of like how this all started. Like, did you always want to be an artist or a potter or, you know, like, how, how did that happen? <laughs> I, I, so it like most things happened randomly for me and like i said i had interned on capitol hill summer after my freshman year in college and i loved it the next summer i i went to skidmore college in upstate new york and it's a beautiful campus it's in this beautiful sort of it's the oldest um horse racing track in in the country Mm -hmm. um so it's this sort of summer resort destination and I realized that if I had made it through winter in upstate New York, I, maybe I should see what this town looks like in the summer without, you know, <laughs> knee-deep snow. Yeah. Um, so I decided to stay up and take a couple courses over the summer. Um, this was after my sophomore year. I was halfway through my American Studies major. I had heard that there was this great anthropology teacher. I thought it was sort of related to what I do. Mm-hmm. So I signed up for that class. I had taken ceramics in high school, but not too seriously. So I signed up for ceramics, and I convinced the teacher to let me take the intermediate class since I had already done some stuff um, in high school. And it was a six-week um, program. I fell in love with the process of clay. I was there so much that I had to drop my anthropology class because oh, wow. I was not doing well <laughs> enough. Um, but I was spending 12 to 14 hours a day in, in the studio and just like trying and trying and trying and being proud of my work. And I think, I, I don't want to apply it to other people. The funny thing about me is what you think is successful at the time. And then you look back on it and you're like, holy shit, that was terrible. <laughs> but finding the success uh, you know, of figuring out a new skill or just like, oh, here, something clicks. Everything that clicks leads to getting better at the next step and solving yeah. the next step of the problem. And I think you have to be blind to the failures in the sense that, you know, you get over them quickly, like, you know, and especially with clay, like you throw something and it fails, you can wedge it back up and do another one. So, yeah, it's all part of the journey of just getting to where you are now you have to go through all that yeah and yeah and every every everything is information for the next piece whether yeah, it's how right. a glaze reacts how how to solve a problem on when there's a little air bubble in the clay and you want to keep throwing a piece all these little things but anyways so i'm in the studio and there's all this talk about a visiting artist who's coming through and her name's toshiko takezu and she at the time had just retired from 25 years of teaching at princeton university and was kind of one of the legends of ceramics. And she was part of that generation that brought, that originally brought ceramics out of just the craft fair, 
Um, and we're talking like fifties and sixties where it was like, it was not art. There was that fine line between Mm. what art was and what craft was. And she was part of this generation that brought clay into the galleries, into museums. And her work was in the Smithsonian museum and art Institute Chicago. And I mean, she's just absolute legend. She made these six foot tall vessels and, she was coming up to Skidmore because we had these big kilns and she was making these kind of monumental forms at this point. Uh, she was probably 70 years old, five feet, and making these monster pieces. Her apprentice had come from Skidmore, so everyone was very excited that everyone was coming back. This was before Google. This is before yeah. anything. Like So, you know, thumbing through a book and hearing how great this is and she's you know on the other side of the studio with a team of three people and they're making this big piece and i'm sitting at the student wheels in this other area and i'm just making pots and making pots and making pots and she comes and sits down next to me and like you know what are you doing like well i'm trying to make a pot yeah (laughs) um she said would you like to help tonight and i was like absolutely and i had no clue what that meant but um, here I am three and a half weeks into my first clay class at college and this legend of an artist, I get to watch work and all I'm doing at that point is kind of cleaning tools and making sure that things are ready and sort of, you know, very grunt work. But next thing I know it's 5am and everyone's worked through the night and she's finished this piece and it's six feet tall and it's massive and it's stunning and it's, you know, it, it, it's just this incredible experience. Um, and it's also clay is one of those few studios in a college setting where you need a community, you need help to move these heavy things around. You need help loading kilns and unloading kilns. You go to graphic design studios and painting studios and everyone's in their own space doing their thing. So it, you know, you, you quickly become part of something. Um, yeah, and from that point on, I was just just hooked. Um, finished up college, I went to back to New York. Um, I moved into the city. I grew up just outside of, the, of New York City. Um, at that point, there weren't a lot of studio spaces in in the city itself, so I kind of reverse commuted to Portchester, New York. Just a short train ride, and there was this co op studio that I rented space in, um, and sort of kind of kept going my friend was a different friend was apprenticing for toshiko at the time and she was about an hour and a half drive from the city so i would go there every once in a while and help them out one time i'm there visiting and she says is there anywhere you could start a studio your own studio and i said my family has this property on the cape that's this it's a commercial rental thing I figure in five years I'll do something with it. You know, in my mind, it's like, get some skills, get some experience. Um, She very matter of factly in, in a way Toshiko could only do it while she's eating. She says, do it now. You'll have it in five years. And that night I couldn't sleep. And I was like, I'm not ready to do this. This is stupid. I'm (laughs) a kid and you know, I don't know. And blah, blah, blah. And I can't sleep. The next day I go, go home and I call my parents and I'm like, Hey, um, crazy idea, but <laughs> would you be interested in letting me, you know, use this this property as a as a starting point for real career in clay? Yeah, and I was, you know, very fortunate that my parents were supportive of it and kind of helped me get that studio started. And you know, ten months later, 
kiln is there studios kind of building out and i'm making pots and we open up in time for summer of i think 98 and toshiko came up to my opening my old professors oh, wow. came all my friends um it was pretty awesome and i had no clue what i was doing but she was right five years later i had a ton of experience and had sorted some stuff out pots had gotten better but i had also learned a bunch of stuff about running a studio was there for another 10 years or so i mean i can go into as much or as little depth but sort of we had our retail season in the summer where we're on the main street so guaranteed people coming through and yeah. kind of um but i was also making very one-of-a-kind pottery and i think sort of my same thing i was talking about earlier i feel like i am trying to i don't want to sound does it sound elitist or obnoxious but like I'm not trying to talk to everyone. I'm not trying to sell pots to everything, everyone, yeah. I think. Yeah. You know, I would say the majority of people who came through the studio got it, but at the same time, we'd have people come through and walk around the gallery for five minutes and then ask if I had anything with a lobster on it. Yeah, and, sure. you know, they want their, their tourist pot. And again, I'm glad people make that work so I didn't have to. But the breath of fresh air for people who really were looking for something different and they'd walk in and kind of have this big exhale oh this is beautiful you know i'm so glad you're here and i didn't realize until we moved from the cape when we moved here to austin in 2009 what an impact you know when you're living in something and you you don't realize what it is you're doing but the summer we moved i did not open the shop we were moving in august so it was like let's enjoy cape cod in the summer yeah and um you know got these incredible messages from our collectors through the years. And I realized that a lot of my clients at that time, they had spent one week a year on the Cape and it was their vacation. And my work had become part of that sort of family tradition. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, there were people who I saw them every year and they'd come through and they'd add to their collection. And not that I took that for granted, but until you stop doing something, you don't realize what an impact it has on other people. Um, and this was, you know, 2009 was pretty early on for sort of selling stuff on the internet. Um, so I knew by by leaving that we were sort of, you know, it was going to be a lot more difficult for anyone who really wanted to get our work to get it. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and what was your aesthetic like at that over that 12 years? Um, I it, mean, it changed a lot. It was very. Um, so the big thing that changed when I got to Austin, and I mean, I guess this brings up the porcelain, um, was I changed the type of firing and kiln that I was using. Okay. Um, and on the Cape, I was doing what's called reduction firing. Um, so it's a gas-fired kiln. I was using dark uh, stoneware clays that have a lot of iron in them. And what you do is you turn down the amount of oxygen from the flame that's going into the kiln. And that flame wants to breathe. And since it's not getting it from the burner itself it's not getting enough oxygen that flame wants to breathe it's finding oxygen in the clay and glazes mm. so it's taking the oxygen out of the clay and glazes and that's creating an interplay between the glaze and the clay and it's bringing iron to the surface of the glaze and it's just creating all these incredible things mm. wow. um old um if you can picture what a chinese celadon looks like that's the you know, beautiful green glaze that's made with red iron and you're taking an oxygen ion out of, you know, Fe203 or something like that. And by taking one of those oxygen ions out, it becomes that green. So it goes from red to green. Copper can go from that kind of blue green to bright red. Um, 
and it's super fun. And when I moved here, I knew I wasn't going to have a gas kiln. So mm. what I wanted to do was minimize all variables, focus on the form, and with an electric kiln, it's in neutral atmosphere. So there's none of that interplay between the clay and glaze. It's sort of you've got your clay and then you've got a glaze that's sitting on top of it. And you can do things that sort of fake that look. And I think there's a lot of that going around um, of that sort of very raw, um, that unglazed and the kind of speckly stuff. Um, Personally, that's not my style. So what I wanted to do was keep the form simple. I had changed a little bit about how I decorate stuff. And that's where this kind of what I think is our signature style now is the, the incised line, that sort of really sharp line that bleeds out a little mm-hmm. bit with the clay and glaze. That's, um, that was part of that material and, and, and process switch. Um, so it was sort of dictated by the kiln that I was using. Yeah. Um, and then was that a switch to using porcelain or what is porcelain? So porcelain, I mean, porcelain's a type of clay. Um, Stoneware's a type of clay, earthenware, terracotta. Those are all types of clay. Um, What porcelain is, is the pure white um, clay. It has kaolin and silica and feldspar, sort of the main ingredients to it. And it gives you that pure white surface to play off of. Stoneware has a lot of iron in it. And, you know, to nerd out, it would be porcelain is typically found at the tops of riverbeds. And, you know, the deposits haven't been dragged through the river picking up um, iron and impurities along Hmm. the way. Um, So So this porcelain clay is literally extracted out of... Yeah, earth. so clays are I mean, it's yeah. not manufactured in any way. It's like, well, I, I, all clay is you know is found in mines across okay, the world. Okay. Um, yeah. In in the states, um, Tennessee, Georgia, Montana has some clay deposits. So sort of what what studio potters get is the leftover of industry. So oh. um, a lot of our materials are also used in sort of chip manufacturing and sort of kind of high tech stuff. And my clay comes from a supplier in California that mixes the clay it's it's just it's a it's a it's a clay body that i love to use and it's sort of a creamy colored versus the 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 pure white of a porcelain but um it throws really well we're able to hand build with it again for me process is going to dictate sort of materials and and stuff that we do yeah so it's it's our clay probably comes from three or four different parts of the country but it's it's mixed in california and then we get it shipped here Mm -hmm. so and what what spurred the move to Austin, and how did that feel like? Kind of giving up that life there. Um, we were ready for a city again. So the Cape is beautiful, and it's amazing. It's also um, very quiet, um, okay. especially yeah. in February, March, when <laughs> when no one's there. Um, my wife is from Houston originally, so when you marry a Texan, it's a known fact that you're going to move there at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Austin came about, we were looking for a city to move to. I didn't want to go back to New York. We looked at Boston because it was close by. It wouldn't have been that big of a switch. And I don't know, we came to a wedding in Austin. Um, one of Evangelina's friends got married here. And 
she was a bridesmaid, so she had all these wedding duties to do, and I just drove around the city and sort of, like, could I picture us moving here? And mm-hmm. we, it was in the discussion of um, that we were getting ready to go somewhere, and after the wedding, I was like, what do you think? Should we should we make this jump? And I think Evangelina knew that we were going to come here already, so yeah. she was just waiting for me to uh, <laughs> accept that fact. Um, but we did, and it was, it was great. Our you know, our oldest was going into first grade, so we knew we had to move soonish, um, mm, or yeah. we'd be tearing him away from kind of real friendships. And you know, we—it was just the right time. So we we moved here in two thousand nine, and it was pretty great. Um, it, it's funny you go through like you move somewhere, and you're like, oh my god, this is awesome, and then six weeks in, you're like, holy shit, I know people and yeah you know um but austin is this very welcoming place we got here at a really good time i mean again i wasn't trying to fall into the restaurant world it wasn't intentional in that sense but i got here at the right time for that to happen sort of the growth of this city restaurants were were opening downtown was being built up i mean when Mm -hmm. we moved here the w was being built um, yeah Uchi was open, but Uchi Co. wasn't open. I mean, all these sort of landmark places are being built at that time. The only thing, I had a couple friends here, so the only thing I knew was if you're going to open a studio, you want it to be on the east side of town because of East Austin Studio Tour. And I found my first studio over at um, on Gardner Road, right around the corner here, at Cobra Studios, oh, okay. um, which was this, it's actually more of an apartment community, but they had first built it as a sort of live work kind of set up mm-hmm. and i found uh someone was renting their unit out on craigslist and i jumped in and convinced them to let me put a kiln in there i used the dryer vent in the apartment as the kiln vent and that was my first studio but the amazing thing about austin was and and what big medium had done creating this platform of Vsauce studio tours i moved here in august in november i'm able to open up my studio doors for the first time and I have this group of people coming through that without that platform, I could be making work and then just screaming from, you know, the rooftop saying, hey, yeah. I'm making pottery over here. But instead, you know, a few hundred people come through that first year. Um, yeah. And that was pretty awesome. Um, and, you know, obviously helpful for um, starting uh, my, my creative life over here. Yeah, no doubt. Maybe I hadn't quite thought of it that way as just kind of a, yeah, if someone just moved here as an artist and they wanted to get on the map a little faster, like that's a perfect vehicle to do it. Yeah, I was lucky. There were, you know, that first year at Cobra Studios, they um, put this party together and, you know, you're you're part of this event that gets people walking through. Um, You know, the hardest thing is letting people know that you're doing something. Mm-hmm. And East made that a lot easier for me. And did you just continue seamless, seamlessly making the same kind of work, or did you actually make any kind of conscious decision to change anything? Yeah. Oh, my work changed drastically. Oh, it did. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, well, yeah, different kiln, different, different kiln, material. Diff- different material. The forms got a lot cleaner. The 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 kind of by getting the forms cleaner and that made me decorate them less i think and then you know but that continued to change i also i was playing around with decals at the time where i took photos around town and um turned them into iron transfer decals so Mm. and then i started buying up these old postcards and i found like an austin motel postcard from the 60s and hotel san jose from the 50s and yeah you know turned them into decals that i put on pots and sort of 
kind of blending that sense of history with my world of pottery and played around with that for a while. And then not that it felt kitschy, but um, it got trendy. Decals got pretty trendy. And I've always, once I realize I'm part of a trend, I try to do something differently and step out of that and just keep trying new things. And um, yeah, yeah. The work that you made in the Cape and then the work that you started making when you moved here, was it, what percentage of it was functional and what percentage of it was for show, you know, artistic kind of piece sitting on the shelf? Um, So I've always made, um, and this is definitely Toshiko's influence and sort of the influence of of the studio at Skidmore of larger, larger vases um, and larger bowls. Um, But again, I I don't separate them as functional versus non-functional objects um, because they're all they're all based in a 20,000 year history of, yeah. <laughs> of ceramics. The, so the funny thing is, and I, you didn't quite phrase the question this way. So I'll pull from my, my days as uh, working on Capitol Hill and yeah. answer a different question. <laughs> okay. But so my work was always functional, but what I did was I skirted around. I only made the piece I, I, and I still only make the pieces I enjoy making, but I hated making dinnerware. And that's the, the big irony of what, I do now in the yeah. studio that, you know, 40% of our work is dinnerware for restaurants is that I would maybe take two commissions a year for, for dinner, dinnerware. Um, it's difficult to make, especially when you're hand throwing it, but I made every other object around the table. So the serving bowl, the salad bowl, the pitcher, the cream or sugar, the, you know, bowls were not a problem, but just making sets and sets of plates was not something that was fun for me. But when we got the restaurant orders, it was like, oh, well, we have to figure out how to make this and how to make it efficiently. And that sort of forced me to do that. And now, again, it's, it's a, it's, I think it's a big part of what people think of when they think of my work and a big part of, of what we do in the studio. It's definitely we've gotten, gotten better at it and have made some process changes that make it easier to do for us. But it's still there's still the pieces that we have the biggest loss rate on and but yeah, so it's it's always been functional work. Now it's just a lot more very functional work. Yeah. Um, and now the, our big push is, and it's funny since we've spent the past five or six years sort of pushing for restaurant work, now we're settling into like, well, we know this is what we can and want to do for restaurants. And by that, I mean the kind of numbers of pieces we're going to do and types of orders we're going to say yes to. So that now gave us room to figure out how to really, I guess, use the word market, but market the work towards homes again, um, mm. make it and make it easier for people to to buy the work for their home. And for that, it was um, it was confusing selling stuff you know three-dimensional objects online and through the website has you know our website sales continue to grow which is astonishing to me but we changed the options of buying our uh, the dinnerware so instead of sort of creating your own set and here's everything we make this year we just launched you know a three-piece dinner set five-piece dinner set seven-piece dinner set and you can buy them in sets of four six eight ten or twelve and it's just it's um it's just cleaner and easier to navigate and figure out how to pick out which pieces you want to bring home yeah you just did you not just yeah recently kind of relaunch 
this online ordering system and kind of these stacks and sets and mm-hmm. your Gramercy line and all that. That was that's kind of recent. Yeah, right? yeah, that's um, something. It, it took um, a, a good part of this year to sort that through. But yeah, we just launched it in September, I guess. Um, yeah, and added. A few new options um so some bowls are new and sort of again taking that info of what we're making for restaurants and what works for chefs and figuring out which pieces can work well within a home setting you know getting to the core of that and explaining it in a way that makes sense to people so Mm -hmm. and do you like making dinnerware now (laughs) i do it's um (laughs) yeah when it works um and how we make it um you know we use a process called jiggering which sort of is an industrial method but we have slowed it down and and made it in a way that um, works for our studio so what i do is i make the molds that we use and i make those piece by piece um so for each piece in the collection it's you know there we'll i'll make like 20 molds of and we'll get a certain number of uses out of those and then we can kind of replicate the forms it still has about 15 steps all of which have hands involved but it's a way to keep sizes and shapes consistent and especially across um, different people in the studio making the objects so yeah you know i've got 25 years of throwing skills and my um studio crew is a lot younger so want to make sure that we're making stuff in a consistent way do you feel like it's hard to manage people's expectations about like what's available or if they can get something or how long it's going to take i mean it seems like that must i meant that would be stressful to me (laughs) you know i don't know um yeah but a big part of that decision was to decide that we're going to make stuff to order so while the showroom is full of full of objects, we have vases in stock, we have kind of accessory bowls in stock, but dinnerware, which is the core of, of what what the studio does, that's made to order. Um, what ends up here are, if I'm making 100 pieces for a restaurant, I have to make 150 to make sure that we get 100 that mm. are that top quality. Um, if we're going to make a 12-piece dinner set for someone, we're going to make 18 sets so that we have enough that, you know, my work is not inexpensive, and I want to make sure that they're, they're yeah. getting the best of the best. Um, so what ends up in here, um, dinnerware-wise, is sort of the extra stuff, and you know, it's basically samples in here. And then, you know, we're made to order. We're, we're not spending our time making stuff for the sake of making it. I want to make it knowing that it has a home. There's, a, there's enough objects in the world. No one really needs what I do. There's so many options um, for everything, whether it's furniture or lighting or pottery yeah. or glassware. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate that people like what I do and I like making what I make and it comes together in a way that we get to continue to make stuff and make it for people. Um, the expectations that people want things now is it's huge and especially selling stuff online. But I think letting people know up front, like, Hey, this could take eight to 10 weeks to make. And so far everyone seems to be okay with that. Um, and again, it's, you know, there's a lot of objects in the world. I don't want to have stacks and stacks and stacks of things that I'm sitting here trying to sell. I want to have stuff that's made for a purpose, not 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 just for the purpose of selling it. Yeah, so it's like people have to switch 
out of their Amazon Prime kind of mindset. And okay, I was like, yeah. oh, this is this is not. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, know. and it's, that's the hardest part. And going back to Eric Trine, who I was talking about earlier, um, I think he's definitely worth a, a follow on Instagram because he's really attacking that mindset and just making people think. He he brought up the idea of self-funding a business versus taking investor money and described it and i can't remember the artist he was talking about but he described it as you know self-funding is when you have enough money to buy more equipment to grow your business you do that but you know you put money back into the business that's coming from the business right so it's become a novel idea to sell the things you make before you make them using that as a way of funding what it is we do. I think about my example of this is last year, for the last time I got caught up in the idea of sort of this like holiday push and doing Mm. a Black Friday sale or a Cyber Monday sale or the whole weekend. And I think all of us independent artists and designers and makers and even small brands are trying to compete with Target and Amazon and all of these companies that they're completely different. But we've all got sucked into this mentality of people want free shipping. And I went on this ill-advised, oh, <laughs> I went on this ill-advised yeah. Twitter thread last year um, where I just went through like, you know, I got sucked into this. I advertised uh, this. Like, it's not worth it for me. My pottery's not light. Like, mm-hmm. it's expensive to ship. Yeah, And while... Every once in a while, I'll do some sort of, you know, incentive. Why would I try to play within that Black Friday, Cyber Monday thing where a company of our scale is just lost within this big mess? And, you know, realizing that I hope that our clients are going to buy my work because of what we do, not because there's a, you know, 10% off sale within this weekend after we've all had turkey at Thanksgiving. So yeah, we we all have to step outside of of that. I think the most confusing thing is people think that our studio is a lot bigger than we are. Um, you know, three people plus me, we can make a certain amount of pieces per year. I think because of the clients we have, because of, again... Um, that's the hard thing about social media is I get to do all these awesome, amazing things and I share them and it looks like something you have to be 10 times the size that Mm. I am to do Yeah, that I think the most important thing for me to keep reminding everyone is that we are small. We are, you know, we make a certain amount of pieces per year. Um, and, and that's it. Like we are made to order. We, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, that 18 months of like sorting things out. And this was a really hard switch in my head to turn was that 18 months was figuring out what we're not going to do. Yeah. Like, you know, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to compete over here. We're not going to try this. We're not going to do this. And then, which was really good and, and clarified a lot of stuff, but it's a really hard switch to say, well, then what do we do? Yeah. Who are we? What can we do? And how are we going to do that? But I think I'm there now. I know I know what we can do. I know what I want to do. And we'll just keep taking those steps and see if we get there. What that makes me think of is something that I was uh, contemplating recently or had someone had talked about is just like figuring out your values. And then 
those kind of all, all also kind of bleed into like boundaries and it's like if you have your values you have your boundaries you know who you are and who you aren't and what you will do and you won't do then it all becomes pretty easy to figure out like if someone gives you an opportunity you can say no that doesn't fit in with my values and so it seems like you took the time to clarify your values and your priorities and and like you said I can't be everyone, everything to everyone. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it's figuring out the, whatever the phrasing is, is, yeah. you know, the values, but whatever it is that you decide that you're going to make your decisions through, you have to remember to make those decisions through that lens. Yeah. You know, and, and that's also not to say you don't jump on an opportunity if it comes. Um, but I think very quickly you realize whether it's an opportunity worth continuing or it's one and done. Yeah. So, do you have any parting words in general, just for artists that might be listening? I, don't, um, I know that's kind of a big ask, but because uh, you must obviously you have wisdom for. I mean, you've been doing this for decades. Um, God, I'm old. Um, <laughs> yeah. How um, old are you? Um, f- almost forty-four. So. Oh, see, I'm older than yeah, you. Yeah, I know. So. But, um, again, I'm almost old enough By to be a, a year. Potter. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> No, I, I don't know. That's that's a tough question. I mean, um, you're around all these. I don't know how much you interact with all the artists around Canopy, but you know, it's like we all. I think that's one appeal to this podcast that a lot of artists listen to. It's like, oh, you know, we're all kind of struggling with the same things, or we have all are battling the same self doubt or fears or whatever, you know. And it's like, oh, well, this even this person who on the outside is very successful, they still struggle just like I do. You know, it's like there's something comforting about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I I think got a few sort of mottos that I go by in the studio. So, I mean, one of like making things is easy, but finishing them is really difficult. Mm. So for getting things finished is a struggle every time you're making something, but knowing that getting that finished is, is the goal and, and, and reaching that. So, Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of the big thing is, um, you know, when we take an order, we're going to deliver that order. When I'm going to try a new piece or make a one-off piece, it's, you know, all art is about process at, at the core of it. Um, and getting your idea from start to finish done, a lot of ideas never become the real thing. And for me, I want, you know, it's the re- getting the real thing out there into the world is what, what we're all trying to do. Nice. Well, thank you. And I would encourage... Anyone that's in Austin that comes around Canopy, you can they can visit Keith's showroom, which is open Wednesday through Friday from eleven to five. Yeah, and I'm also usually here, so yeah. um, you know, you can always knock on the door in the studio where oh. we're always in the studio as well. Oh, and there's the phone. And there's the phone. Someone <laughs> someone someone's calling to get in. <laughs> Cool. Well, thanks for your time, Keith. I'm really glad we finally got to sit down and I got to get to know yeah, you a yeah, little yeah. better. It's, um, I appreciate um, you reaching out. I know it's it's been about a year trying to get this yeah. together, even though we're <laughs> 200 yards apart, but um, it all works. No worries. I know. I, I appreciate what you're doing and the way you're going about it, and it's uh, it's very inspiring, and I hope people enjoy this conversation. Well, thanks, and thanks for letting me share my story. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. 
If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care. Thank you.